Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That'll be our text for this morning. Well, the mission of the church in our age, as given by Jesus, is to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything that Jesus taught. This means that all Christians are commanded to regularly proclaim the gospel, whether that be to our LDS neighbors, our agnostic siblings, or our young children. There can't be any favoritism in our hearts. We are to preach the gospel to all people and all kinds of people. And because we live in Utah, it's likely that a significant portion of our evangelistic work will be towards Latter-day Saints. And lest you be tempted to tune out at this point because you think, oh, I'm not an evangelist, this isn't, this isn't about me. Be assured, I am talking to you, <laughs> talking to all of you, because no Christian is exempt from the command to preach the gospel. The reason we focus on Mormonism here is, is quite simple, actually. We want to love our LDS neighbors, and a lot of our neighbors are LDS. That means that we do crazy, ridiculous things, like stand on street corners, uh, do debates, uh, make videos, and whatever else we can to get the gospel out, because we really, really care about people. And preaching the gospel ought to be an act of compassion and love. The way we preach the gospel is also really significant. It's not just that we preach it. The way we preach the gospel, our methods of evangelism, demonstrate our attitude towards our unbelieving neighbors, and it demonstrates how seriously we take the gospel. The prayer theme this month being about Mormonism, as uh, Rich said, thought it would be prudent to preach about our methods and disposition towards evangelism. Our passage today is going to teach us about how the Apostle Paul approached his ministry and how we can demonstrate with our methods and our disposition and our language that our aim is not to stir up an attitude of superiority or to manipulate people, but that our goal is to plainly and straightforwardly proclaim Jesus. My goal this morning is for you to be encouraged in evangelism and to prompt you to preach the gospel faithfully and to urge you to actively love your neighbors, Mormon or otherwise, through evangelism. Let's read our passage, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with God, uh, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, this morning, as we look to your word, would you teach us 
how to be evangelists for the gospel. Lord, would you show us the way we ought to approach our unbelieving friends and family and coworkers? God, would you remind us that we are Christians by your mercy? And so as evangelists, we are also reliant on your grace and mercy. Instruct us this morning, Lord. Weed out of our minds wrong thinking. And Lord, let us learn to love the gospel of your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first, let's consider the responsibility we all have towards evangelism. Verse 1 says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Paul begins with a therefore, drawing on what he spoke of in the prior section. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the chapter before this, uh, Paul tells us about the difference between Moses' ministry under the Old Covenant and Paul's ministry under the New. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6, Paul says, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This new ministry Paul speaks of is the ministry of the Spirit. It's a better ministry than the ministry of the law, which veiled and hardened Israel's heart. Note, Paul says that he has this ministry, this new covenant ministry, by the mercy of God. You have to remember who the Apostle Paul is here. He was once a Pharisee, not just any old Pharisee. He was a Pharisee who led the charge in persecuting and killing Christians. Yet God, in his mercy, did not count Paul's sins against him, but made Paul an apostle in this superior ministry. Paul doesn't have this new covenant ministry because of his accomplishments or skills or or past, but because of God's mercy. Paul continues by anticipating a potential outcome of the ministry that he's been entrusted to, losing heart, discouragement, or timidity. He says here, we do not lose heart. When he says we, he's likely talking about himself and other apostles, those who have been given this this ministry in a special kind of way. Paul refused to be discouraged because he had been called to this ministry by the mercy of God. You and I have also been called to our ministry by the mercy of God. So that is a very function of our salvation. Just because we're not apostles does not mean that we are exempt from new covenant ministry. We are all called by God We are commanded by God to minister to our families, to teach our kids the gospel. We are called to minister to other Christians, to love them and encourage them, to pray for them and to remind each other of the gospel that saved us. And we are also commanded to minister to unbelievers. You and I, who also have been called by the mercy of God, cannot neglect the ministry that we've been given. We're not exempt from our Christian duty to proclaim the gospel. And get this, regardless of how people respond, even in the face of rejection, we are not exempt from our ministry to proclaim the gospel. Paul says he doesn't lose heart here, but the question is kind of, well, how? How do you avoid from becoming discouraged in a ministry where you're being rejected? How can we avoid becoming discouraged, especially in the face of rejection? 
What Paul is about to explain, we ought to be encouraged by the character of our ministry. The character of our ministry is what gives us encouragement. Look at verse 2 with me. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In these couple verses, Paul seeks to provide a defense for his ministry. He tells us here both what he rejects and avoids and what he practices and commends. Paul says that he rejects shameful and secretive practices like practicing cunning or messing with God's word. Now, cunning just means uh, craftiness, trickiness, or slyness. It means to manipulate people. A con man is is cunning. It's an example of something that's cunning. Paul makes it clear here. He does not practice a cunning kind of ministry, a sly ministry. We ought to learn to imitate Paul here. We cannot consider conning people into responding to the gospel. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, this means that we don't lure non-Christians in with the promise of worldly things. We don't offer people riches or material possessions or earthly rewards or comfort or even entertainment as a means to get them to hear and respond to the gospel. That's a a bait and switch. We're not slick gospel salesmen here. That's not how we're supposed to draw people. And it's the very kind of ministry that Paul was rejecting here. Jesus taught that if we want him, we need to be willing to forsake everything, everything else in the world. Everything. That means riches and comfort and family and all of it. That's the cost of discipleship, our willingness to forsake those things. What kind of gospel are we preaching if the things we draw people with are the very things Jesus said we needed to be willing to forsake and reject? But the second disgraceful underhanded method is arguably even more sinister and honestly, I think even more of a subtle temptation for Christians. Paul says that he refuses to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Consider for a moment your own life and your conversations with people about the gospel and consider whether you regularly, intentionally tamper with the truth. You, like me, likely consider yourself to be pretty in the clear on that point. It personally brings to my mind uh, the way some false teachers tamper with the truth. The worst examples of Scripture being twisted and spun around to say things that it just doesn't say. And so we're probably all quick to say, well, of course we don't tamper with God's word. Duh, that's, that's a really obvious one. But looking closely at what tamper means might help give us some insight here to rightly examine our hearts. This word tamper was also used in that time period to refer to wine merchants who would water down the wine that they sold. These merchants would add a little wine or a, a little water to their wine or some other liquid, and then market it and sell it as though it were the unaltered thing, saving a little bit of money by making it stretch just a little further. 
We cannot water down God's word. We dare not water down God's word. That means we can't make scripture say any more or less than what it says. Church, you must boldly and unashamedly preach the whole counsel of God's truth, even the stuff that is hard and uncomfortable. Sometimes our temptation may be to preserve our relationships with people or to maybe impress people or to have visibly impressive results, to seem like we're masterful teachers or parents or evangelists. But that is not a victory. This can easily lead to tampering, watering down God's word. Tampering with God's word can be far too easy for us to do. And it may look pretty innocuous. It may look simply like Christians avoiding disagreement about important doctrines and showing a kind of inappropriate spiritual unity with unbelievers by simply not addressing biblical disagreements. It could be rarely speaking of sin and hell, rarely preaching to the idolatry of false belief, or perhaps de-emphasizing the exclusivity of Christ. As Christians, we celebrate, we celebrate and rejoice in the undefiled gospel proclamation, not the crafty creation of those who seek selfish gain and personal advancement. We reject the facade of half-hearted Christian truth for one simple reason. Jesus is better than any possible distortion or trickery. He's better. And if that's what we must avoid, then what should our strategy be? We, we know what not to do. Can't practice cunning. Can't tamper with the truth. What do we need to do? Well, look at what Paul says next. By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The open statement of truth is the ministry strategy that we too must adopt. The best possible thing that we can do for a person is not to make our message as easy to accept as possible, but to faithfully and clearly present what God has said. Many Christians fall into the trap of being overly pragmatic about evangelism. Churches do the same kind of thing often. They let visible results primarily dictate a philosophy of ministry. For example, and this is an extreme case, if we as a church never spoke about repentance, we'd likely attract a certain kind of person that we don't have here now. If you shared the gospel by telling someone how much God loved them, but neglected to include the part about how Christ requires us to turn away from our sin and forsake ourselves, well, you'd probably get lots of people to accept that message. Church, do not desire outward success at the expense of the plain statement of the truth. I've talked down at Temple Square numerous times to uh, soft-hearted and sincere Latter-day Saints. And I'll admit, sometimes, if it's a, a person that it's really easy to just love and, and have a conversation with, I feel 
the draw, the temptation to make the gospel just a little more palatable to them, just a little easier to accept. Succumbing to this, though, would not be pleasing to God. And we do a disservice to the person who's soft-hearted and sincere when we make God's word say what we want it to say. It is better for someone to hear the hard words of gospel than to hear soft words that lead to destruction. I'll say that one more time. It is better for someone to hear hard words of gospel truth than soft words that lead to destruction. We stand with Paul on this one. We are committed to plainly and openly stating the truth. This isn't just in personal evangelism here. This dictates our thinking as a church also. We want to, as a church, learn to deal with uncomfortable and potentially offensive topics clearly and straightforwardly. We want to teach you how to interact with difficult issues rightly and honorably. That means that we will, we will address things from the Bible like homosexuality, what the Bible teaches about Mormon doctrine or other faiths for that matter clearly and purposefully. We'll talk about doctrines that we disagree about and we'll show you from scripture why we believe what we believe. We'll be straightforward about our positions, trying to convince you from God's word. Not to be arrogant, not to appear better than other people, but to learn and practice dignified, godly speech that is clear and direct about what God says. This is just one of the reasons we love preaching through the Bible verse by verse. We love it because we just want to give you what God said, plainly and clearly and straightforwardly. That's our philosophy for our God Loves Mormons ministry, too. Same kind of thing. To clearly and honorably present God's word without being cute, without playing games or being clever, but by plainly and openly stating the truth. We want to learn as Christians to take joy and delight in openly stating truth in every arena of life. It's better for us to remain fully faithful in all that Scripture teaches including the off-putting and difficult parts, than it is to adjust it for the sake of approval. We've all been called to this gospel ministry. And our God-given ministry strategy is not complicated. It's simply the open and plain statement of God's word. But here's a question. If someone full of integrity in ministry goes about for years and doesn't see any fruit Can we rightly say that their ministry is effective or is fruitful or is good? And that kind of leads us into our next question. Why do so many people reject this open statement of the truth? If the truth is the thing that makes people alive and is what we love, why why is it so often rejected? Let's look at the next couple of verses. Paul continues, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
A critic of Paul might look at his ministry and deduce that it was a total and utter failure in some ways. His people, the Jews, largely rejected the gospel. But Paul refused to make the gospel easier for them to digest. He refused to make it more palatable to those, even though it might have resulted in some people deciding to follow it. A rejection of the gospel ought not be taken as a failure of Paul's ministry, and it ought not be taken as a failure of ours either. Why? Because Paul explains the reason for rejection. The gospel is rejected. It's not rejected because there's a problem with it. It's not rejected because we didn't craft the perfect gospel call that was just rightly worded. The gospel is rejected because it's veiled. This language of veiling Paul uses in the previous chapter in which Paul talked about the veil that covered Moses' face. And Moses' face glowed with a type of glory and he had to keep it covered. And then he talks about the metaphorical veil that keeps Israel from seeing, understanding, and rightly responding to the law of Moses. But in this case, it isn't Israel that's veiled from the truth. It's outsiders, those who reject the new covenant. And the veil isn't present because Paul's a bad communicator or because church is boring or anything like that. The veil is present because those that are veiled are perishing. They're blinded. And their blindness is caused by the God of this world. Reason number one Paul gives for why his message is rejected, the people rejecting it are perishing. Paul divides humanity here into two groups, those that are perishing and those that are being saved. To one group, the gospel is perfectly clear. To the other group, the gospel makes absolutely no sense. This may seem like a simple truth, but it's a critical point to understand. Those who are not being drawn by God will reject your message in their hearts. They will. Our job in evangelism isn't to sort through who is and isn't being drawn, but to cast a wide net and to preach the gospel to everyone. You remember, Jesus once taught the parable of the sowers, where the word of God goes out to four different kinds of people. But in only one of those four situations does the word of God take hold and grow and bear fruit. We should expect, expect that when we proclaim the gospel, we will be rejected by those who are perishing. We're sowing the gospel wide to find the good and fruitful soil. And that kind of soil, good soil, it's not produced by our fantastic oratory skills or our ability and skills and efforts to make our message more palatable. Good soil is granted by the gracious hand of God. The very last verse here, or I'm sorry, verse four up on the screen here, says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Let's do the next part after that. Reason two people reject Paul's message is because they're blind. The reason people are perishing, the reason the gospel is veiled, is because people are blinded. 
This is really important for Christians to understand about interacting with unbelievers. Spiritual blindness is not merely ignorance. It's not simply unintelligence. It's blindness. That is a critical distinction that will dictate our attitude towards the unbeliever. And that leads us to reason number three that people reject Paul's gospel. The God of this world is the source of spiritual blindness. Now, I understand the God of this world to be Satan, although some in history have seen it to be a reference to God. Satan is powerful. Though Christ dealt a crippling death blow to him on the cross, his final destruction still looms in the future. He is the great deceiver and tempter, and he draws people's affection away from God. Satan's chief goal, you could say, is to keep people from glorifying God and from fully enjoying him forever. So we should internalize that a rejection of God's word is not an issue of intelligence. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is important. The natural person, the one who has not been made new by the Spirit of God, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The unbeliever rejects the new covenant offer. Why? Because it's folly to him. But more than that, the, the unbeliever is not able to. He can not understand these spiritual things. It's not that he doesn't want to, not that he has trouble understanding. The unbeliever is not capable of accepting these spiritual truths. Apart from the work of God's Spirit, it is impossible, it is impossible for the unbeliever to receive and favorably respond to the gospel. The fact that we understand the gospel and other people are blinded to it can sometimes create in our hearts the sin of pride and arrogance and undue anger. We need to guard against the arrogance of thinking, even if just secretly in our heart, that we are somehow smarter or brighter than the person we are preaching the gospel to. We can't be filled with unjust anger or desire to pick fights or be quarrelsome with people because we're dealing with blindness. Saints, watch your heart on this. You have no room to be arrogant against those who do not believe. It was in humility and repentance that you were saved, not in arrogance and smugness. The only reason you are not in the same pit of blindness, wallowing in your sins still to this day, is because the Lord had mercy on you. Don't use the grace of God as a license for pride and conceit. 2 Timothy chapter 2 Verses 24 through 26 says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Yes, correcting people, but with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. If the problem with people is their spiritual blindness, that also informs how we go about proclaiming God's word. Look at what Paul writes about the very first time he visited Corinth, the way in which he preached the gospel. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you, nothing among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul was quick to admit that he was not a particularly skilled or convincing speaker, and that was an intentional decision on his part. Paul didn't want to make an emotionally compelling, impressive argument that would compel someone to agree with him. If the natural man is incapable of rightly responding to the gospel, then why would we adjust our message and tamper with the truth or practice cunning to squeeze someone in? If the problem is not merely disinterest, but a blindness and a veiled heart, why would we try and craft the perfect environment with the flawless combination of emotional pleading and swelling music and mood-setting lights to get someone saved? These tactics save no one because no one is saved by natural means. If someone rejects the plain message of God's word, then no amount of tampering will affect their hardened and blinded heart. We cannot afford to be Christians who invent and create new programs and policies and tactics that subtly aim to excite someone's flesh. What is most effective for drawing people is not always God-honoring, and we would do well to remember that. Pragmatism is not our guide for how to proclaim God's word. God's word is our guide for how we proclaim God's word. The point of evangelism isn't to win a discussion. It's not to perfectly maneuver and manipulate someone's emotions to get them to accept the gospel. The point is to honor God. That's the point. That's the point of evangelism, and that's our goal. And we honor God by just preaching his word. The people who reject our message are those whose minds are blind to the truth. But the opposite is also true. So be encouraged. For those that are being made alive, the gospel will become clear to them. Certainly. Let me speak for a moment to those who have dear friends or family who are not believers. That's hard. And it's anguishing and can be discouraging. And after perhaps years, decades maybe, of countless tears and anxieties and desperate hopes and conversations, it may feel like the word of God will never be effective in their heart. And you may feel so drained by a person's resistance to the gospel that you may just want to avoid the topic altogether in order to keep the peace, not ruffle any feathers. When our families continuously reject the gospel, and our children don't seem to accept and live by the precepts of God's word, it's not hard to become discouraged and maybe even to feel tempted to make the message more acceptable to them. 
And why? What's our impulse behind that? Well, because we love people. That's our impulse, and that's a good impulse. We genuinely care for people. That's good. We know what a rejection of the gospel means, and that can be a crushing rejection to us. We want people to be Christians. We ache for them to believe in the gospel. And so this interaction can be life-sapping. It can make us feel dry and empty, like we've given it all we've got, and we have nothing left to offer. Christian, do not give up. Do not lose heart. The most loving thing you can possibly do for someone who rejects the gospel is to continue preaching truth. Church, it is good to hope. Hope is a good virtue. But don't hope in your eloquence or your intelligence. Hope in the God who is alive and sovereign and who gives life to the dead. Remind yourself that at one point you too heard the gospel and rejected it. You too were blind. You now have this ministry by the mercy of God. God did the miracle in saving you. So humbly turn to the Lord in prayer. Never forsake going to the only one who has the power to give sight to the blind. We Christians don't stand here as some elite who take pity on these poor sinners who need grace. We humbly stand here as those who say, I once was blind, but now I see. We've all been commanded to proclaim the gospel clearly and openly. And if the gospel is rejected, it's rejected because people are blinded to it. But what exactly is it in the gospel that people can't see? We walk through points of the gospel and talk through the story, and people can be like, yeah, I, I get that. But what is it in the gospel that people are unable to recognize? Well, let's return to our text here. Oh, I forgot to do the second half of 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. That's okay. You can look it up at home if you're interested. Um, the last verse here says, uh, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What does the phrase light of the gospel of the glory of Christ mean? Because he says they're blinded, keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the, the glory of Christ. Well, in chapter 3, Paul reminded the Corinthians that light once emanated from Moses' face because of the glory of letters carved on stone, the law. This old and inferior covenant was so glorious, then how much more glorious is the new covenant, and how much brighter is its light? And that glorious light is not from tablets of stone this time, but is the gospel of the glory of Christ written on our hearts by the Spirit who gives life. This is crazy. The good news of all ages is the message that reveals the beauty and magnificence of Jesus. Now, this idea will be brought back up in verse 6, so we'll come back around to it there. But the point here is that unbelievers are blinded to the essence and content of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, a lot can be said about Jesus being the image of God. Um, he, he's what we see 
when we look to God. He's the display of God's glory. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When we look to Jesus, we see the God who cannot be seen. That's why Jesus tells Philip in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To say that one is blind to the gospel is to say they have no genuine knowledge of God. They don't and can't know God. Because God is not known apart from him revealing himself in Christ, who is shown in the very gospel unbelievers are blind to. So Paul continues with verse 5 here. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. What we proclaim and preach is not us. Paul is clear here. You are not the content of the gospel. Jesus is. Proclaiming ourselves would look like exalting our own thoughts and feelings and experiences and leveraging our abilities and humor and gifts to make the message more about us than anything else. But evangelism is not some kind of TED talk. The gospel is not about us. Jesus is the content of the gospel. And his word is what we openly proclaim. If people reject the gospel, they reject Jesus. So we don't get discouraged at the ministry that we all have to proclaim the gospel clearly and openly because when people reject the glory of Jesus, they reject it out of blindness. We have one unanswered question here that Paul has alluded to, but he hasn't really hit here. If unbelievers are blinded to an understanding of the glory of Christ, then how is anyone saved? How can people be saved if everyone is blind? How did we believe if we were blinded? What made us accept the gospel and our neighbors reject it? Last verse of our text this morning, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. This is really cool. Paul alludes to creation here. God made light shine out of the darkness. And Paul uses this reference to creation as a means to show us what transpires in the theater of our hearts. All of our hearts were once the stage of darkness, unbelief, and veiled understandings. Blindness. But God called out of that darkness blessed light. The very God who created heaven and earth, who called light into being, the living God of matchless power, the most high God who was and is and will be, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is absolutely miraculous. God took away your blindness. He removed the veil. We can see because of him. He's shown in our hearts and revealed himself to us. That's fantastic. It's, it's really great news that you didn't do that. God did. It's hard to imagine here that Paul is not thinking back to his own conversion experience here. When Paul was on uh, the road to Damascus, he was literally shown the light of the glory of God, and it blinded him. Look at what Paul records in Acts chapter 26. When the light shone around him and he heard a voice, uh, the voice said, or Paul said, and I said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appointed you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Did you catch what he said here? Did you see what God told Paul? God said that he is sending Paul to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Now, wait a second. Paul said in our passage that it was God who shines in our hearts to give us knowledge of the gospel. So what gives? Are we the ones who open the eyes of the blind, or is it God who shines the light in the heart of the blind? Well, think back personally. You, as an unbeliever, once heard the preached gospel. Who was it? that preached the gospel to you. Christians! Christians are the means God uses to open the eyes of the blind. Christians preaching the gospel. It's the work of God through the work of man. That's how you were saved. And that should encourage us in every evangelistic situation we are ever in in our entire life. God uses Christians to communicate the very message he opens their eyes to. Don't give up the ministry God has called you to because you think you can't do it or because you don't know enough or you're not gifted enough or some problem with you. Of course you can't do it. As John Piper once said, I love this quote, the fact that you can't make electricity or create light never stops you from flipping light switches. The very next verse of 2 Corinthians 4 after our passage, one verse later says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God uses a weak vessel because it demonstrates the power of God. The point was never that you were clever or unique or bright even. The point was that God is a mighty savior. Giving sight to the blind is not your job. Don't think that it is. If you rightly preach the whole gospel, never think that because you failed to say something just right, someone doesn't believe. Your perfect speech will never lead someone to genuine belief apart from the work of God. Sometimes the most weak and pitiful gospel presentations are used by God to open the eyes of people. I had a professor at Moody who told this story in my systematic theology class, and I think it's perfect for this. He was once, going through seminary, a security guard. He worked kind of a night shift and worked in a little booth and just guard the place in the evenings, do a couple rounds, and then come back to the booth. And when he got there every evening, uh, all the employees would be leaving, and so he would, you know, have polite conversation as they were headed out. And he recounted that there was this one lady in particular who loved to talk to him. And so he would be there, and he's in seminary, so he would have all his books ready to study, because that's, I guess, what you do when you're a security guard. Uh, in any case, she would want to talk to him, and he'd be trying to study, and he'd, you know, be polite and whatnot, and she'd still talk, and eventually she'd leave. This happened a number of times. And there was one particular night he was especially feeling pressured to do a lot of work, uh, get a lot of work done. And so he was really, you know, okay, books are open, i got to study. And she came by wanting to talk, and he was very obviously giving her, you know, very cold responses, trying to indicate, I'm really trying to work here. And she kind of peered over and said, ooh, what are you working on there? And he said, 
I'm studying about how if you don't repent from your sins, you will go to hell and be damned forever. And she looked at him and burst into tears and said, I know, I know, that's true, and got saved that very night. (laughs) Maybe he could have had a little more tact in that. But the point is, if he could successfully proclaim the gospel, then there's hope for you yet. When we proclaim God's word, our hope is not to convince someone of its truthfulness or emotionally compel them to believe. Our hope is that God may so choose to shine the light of the gospel in their hearts. Spiritual blindness is overcome by the light that is shown into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The gospel that's shown into our hearts gives us knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, we've got to talk about this for a second because this is just really cool and exciting. One, Jesus is the embodiment of the glory of God. We saw the same idea in verse 4. I I said we'd get back to it, and here we are. Think about this. The way we see the glory of God is in the face of Jesus. The way we witness God's beauty and perfection is in the flesh of Jesus. God reveals and manifests his eternal infinite glory for us to witness and behold in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's gloriousness and of his beauty and mercy and justice. And number two, the content of the gospel is the glory of God. According to this verse, the good news is the knowledge of God's glory. God's glory as imaged in Christ is the content of the gospel that we are given sight of. Okay, so what do I mean by this? The gospel is the message of the glory of God. It tells us about Jesus, the Son of God, who lived a perfect life, died for our sins, was buried, and resurrected. The story of the gospel is the revelation of God's glory in Jesus. That means God shows us his glory, his attributes, in the gospel. When we see, or, or we see God's love and his mercy and his eternal sovereign plan and his justice and his wrath and his perfection and his holiness all chiefly through Christ in the gospel. All history revolves around the gospel. God crafted the story of mankind to center around his glory coming to earth. Everything points forward and backward to Jesus Jesus is the essence of the gospel, and Jesus is the manifestation of the glory of God. And that means that the good news, the gospel, is God. He is our good news. His glory is the very essence of the gospel that we preach to people. Election, regeneration, forgiveness, justification, all these things are not the ultimate purpose of the gospel. Eternal life, eternal satisfaction and and happiness for us, is that the purpose? What is happiness and eternal life without God, without his glory? Our happiness and eternal life is not the end in and of itself. The gospel is so much greater than us. The glory of God is not a means to any end. It is the end. It is the purpose. When we preach the gospel to people, we are preaching the message that reveals 
the glory of the eternal, everlasting God. And you don't change the revelation of God's glory. You don't twist God's glory. You don't water it down. The value and purpose of our message and its cosmic and eternal implications must refrain us from adding to it or taking away from it. How can we think that we could ever have something to add to the revelation of God's glory? How can we act like we are able to improve its effectiveness? This is, the very, this is at the very heart of why we preach the gospel to Mormons and why we must be evangelists as Christians. It's the purpose for which we exist, to behold and tell of the glory of God. Faithful Christians, preach the gospel. Teach your kids around the dinner table of God's glory. Talk to strangers on the street. Have lunch with coworkers. The straightforward proclamation of God's truth is the victory for the Christian, whether people accept it or not. Faithfulness is the true test of all ministry. And faithful ministry is not discouraging ministry because it's not results-based. It's not a ministry that preaches ourselves. The response we yearn to hear from people is not what a gifted Christian, but what a glorious God. Preach the gospel. Preach it often. Preach it from scripture. Preach it boldly. Don't alter the message to make it easier to accept. Faithfully proclaim the very message that saved you. Let's pray. Lord, we are your people. God, we are those that you have called by your name and for your glory. God, it is your grace that saved us. It is your grace that reached down and removed the veil from our eyes. And Lord, we stand here as those that have been given sight. Lord, you are our God, and we praise you and worship you. Lord, I pray for our church. God, would you give them a desire to faithfully proclaim the gospel. Give their hearts a, a yearning to preach the gospel to everyone that they know. Lord, would you give us a love for the proclamation of your gospel? God, would you make us, give us a conviction that we do not tamper with your word, but we proclaim it boldly and faithfully and straightforwardly. Lord, keep us from playing games or being cunning. Lord, help us to be faithful. Father, I pray for everyone in here that has family, close family, or friends that reject you. God, encourage the hearts of your people. Lord, teach us what it means to have hope in you. And Lord, encourage us that what we are commanded to is faithfulness, not opening the eyes of the blind. Lord, that is your job. And so God, we ask that you would work miracles with the people that we love and care for. God, would you open their eyes? Would you cause them to repent and turn to you in faith? Lord, would you be glorified by saving the people we care so deeply about? 
God, give us a right attitude in preaching the gospel. Teach us what it means to be faithful evangelists. And thank you, Lord, for your grace and your glory. We love you, and we do all these things for your glorious name. We pray this in the name of our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.